one sentence that she said struck me. It was, I had a Methodist mom who taught me Mormon doctrine. Just that one sentence, those simple, speaks so much to the broader Christian context that so many of these women came from who gave the discourses in your book. It's easy for some of us to think so much about the world in a way that's us and them. And I, the line that you refer to, just because it reminds us that all the women in this book, and Judy Brummer in particularly, they're trying to figure out the gospel of Jesus Christ and how to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And I feel like that's one of the things you really take away from the reading of this book, is how to be a more effective disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's a broader vision than, than just a Mormon disciple of Christ. It's a disciple of Christ. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Hello, I'm Laura Harris-Hales, your host for this episode of the LDS Perspectives Podcast. Today, I'm here with Jenny Reeder and Kate Holbrook, editors of At the Pulpit, 185 Years of Discourses by Latter-day Saint Women, and we will be talking about female discourse throughout the history of the church. Jenny Reeder is a 19th century women's history specialist at the LDS Church History Department. She has a Ph.D. in American History from George Mason University with an emphasis in women's history, religious history, memory, and material culture. She recently published a book with Janice Johnson, The Witness of Women, Firsthand Experiences and Testimonies of the Restoration. She is managing a 19th Century Relief Society Minute Book database project, which will digitize, transcribe, and index over 900 minute books. Kate Holbrook is Managing Historian of Women's History at the LDS Church History Department, where she studies the ways Mormons make meaning and making history. She is co-editor of the first 50 years of Relief Society, Key Documents in Latter-day Saint Women's History and Women of Mormonism, Historical and Contemporary Perspectives. Her dissertation explores the everyday theological priorities carried in food. What a fascinating dissertation, Kate. Oh, it was terrific. I still like to talk about food almost more than anything else. And you're a great cook, too, I hear. I, well, I don't. (laughs) She is a fantastic cook. (laughs) And Jenny, I just am fascinated about this new project, 900 Minute Books. I know, it's exciting. We're still trying to figure out the details of how it's all going to work, but we're going to need a lot of help from a lot of people all over the world. Wonderful. Let's jump right in. At the Pulpit is your new book. It's about women speaking about their religion to fellow members in various religious settings. You edited this book in the course of your employment for the church, and it's published under the imprint of the Church Historians Press. Is it significant that this is the second book in as many years that the church has published concerning women's history? I think it's extremely significant. The Church Historians Press has a mandate to publish accurate, transparent, and authoritative works of history about the LDS Church, and to elevate the level of understanding and discourse about LDS history, both for the scholarly audience and the LDS audience. And so as a result, just the very fact that we have two books coming out in two years about Latter-day Saint women is huge. 
It means that women are important, that women have important things to contribute, and that we need to make women's words and experiences accessible to a much larger public. We also don't want it to be misleading that we came out with two books in two years. Both of these books took years and years of work, and we'll need a couple of years before the next one comes out. Great. So this collection includes an interesting assortment of what you have labeled discourses. For instance, one of the things you included was a prayer. How did you define the term discourse as you were compiling the book? I actually looked up the term discourse in the Oxford English Dictionary, where it talks about how discourse is the process of reasoned argument or thought. So in the larger sense, discourse or the Mormon discourse is the way that Mormons talk about what they believe and their theological understandings. So in that sense, I think it's also important to recognize the idea of change over time and how women's participation in Latter-day Saint discourse changed over time. So at the beginning, we have different types of discourses than we do at the end of our chronological collection here. For example, we have a song in tongues sung in the nearly completed Kirtland Temple in 1835 by Elizabeth Ann Whitney. That was a very natural form of expression for her and a very natural form of discourse during a time of charismatic expression of spiritual gifts. And then we have this prayer by Elvira Barney written out word for word and printed in the Women's Exponent. It indicates also this woman's contribution and understanding of her relationship with God, her understanding of the state of women, and her hopes for what women could do to participate in the larger discourse. When I read those, I thought, well, they couldn't find anything for this time period. But I'm reconsidering that evaluation. So what you were trying to do was present different types of discourse through the history of the church. So they mainly participated in prayer or through the songs. So let's represent that because we have women saying prayers now, of course, but definitely we don't have women speaking in tongues usually. Right. And another example of discourse I found was in the early Relief Society minutes. Women at that time didn't give up and give these long, lengthy speeches or even lessons, but they participated in a discussion format. And this is very common in women's organizations of the time, where women shared ideas, but they played off of each other. And in that sense, they are all contributing to this idea of Relief Society discourse or Latter-day Saint discourse. We have streamlined sort of the idea of what a discourse is as time has gone by and as we've gotten more well-crafted discourses or talks as technology has changed and the ability to give a discourse and to record a discourse has changed. What you've described sounds like what we do in our release society today. Absolutely. Which brings me to my next thought. There is a familiar quote from British novelist L.P. Hartley, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. I got the opposite impression when I was reading the words of these Mormon women of the past. Their message often seems similar to those that we hear from the pulpit today or, as you mentioned, in Release Society meetings. In that way, I think this book helps pull us toward our past more than others might. Was that one of your goals as editors? 
We tried to strike a balance because you do always want to be aware that a message was delivered in a particular historical context and that those contexts matter and that they do change over time. At the same time as we were looking through every talk we could get our hands on, we looked for those that had a timeless feel about them, that had messages that we felt would resonate with today's readers. You had so much material to pull from. Did you have a rubric or how did you decide what to keep and what to toss? In the earlier years, I imagine it was easier because you had less material, but in the last 30 years, you had tons to pull from. For most of the decades, it was really hard to choose, and and there are some fantastic talks that are not in the book. And frankly, we prayed about this and, and tried to include divine direction in the process as well as our own minds and thoughts. Our priorities were to find talks that were really well written and talks that included theological analysis. So that's a high standard, and that that did help us narrow it down quite a bit. Early in the process, Janelle Higby was helping us, and she quoted Emily Dickinson about feeling that the top of your head has been blown off. And we kept that in mind, too, as we would look at a talk. If, If we finished reading it and immediately wanted to go put on Facebook a quotation from it or, or mail it to our friends so they could see it, we thought that this is a good sign that this talk belongs in the book. We spent a lot of time poring over old Dusty Relief Society minute books and newspapers, especially the Women's Exponent, magazines, the Young Women's Journal, the Relief Society magazine, conference reports, and the internet. We took a couple years to pour over those, and we tried to choose a couple from every decade, and we tried to also pick women both well-known and women that were not known. I met a lot of new women in this process. I suppose a lot of what you read in those minute books were Sister So-and-So needs some help on Tuesday. So you had to sift carefully to find those jewels. Absolutely. And it was. It also depends entirely upon the secretary and how the secretary kept minutes. A lot of times there was just a list of Sister So-and-So bore her testimony without a word of explanation. And it was interesting because sometimes when men, like the bishop, would come to the meeting, they would write down every single word that the bishop said, but then they would say the president of the Relief Society then bore her testimony. So it was interesting to see that gendered reaction, the gendered preservation of words from the very beginning. Interesting and disappointing. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe she was just really tired after writing down all those words from the bishop. <laughs> it's true. I can't imagine how hard it would be. But you also get a, you also have to recognize the slant that this is coming from a secretary's perspective. And it may not be exactly what was said. So you have to take all of that into consideration. We should mention, too, it was really important to us to include international voices in this book. And Jenny even arranged to have people translate some Swedish Relief Society Minute books and some Hawaiian Relief Society Minute books. And unfortunately, they didn't yield discourses that we could use in the finished product. So are we going to see that maybe in your Minute book? In our Minute book database, yes, absolutely. Great. In the introduction, you say something interesting. You say, the discourses in this volume allow readers to hear the historical and contemporary voices of women who have spoken up and spoken out. I have to admit, I didn't see much spoken out in there, except for perhaps I did laugh out loud at the first woman's speech from 
a general conference that was actually Lucy Mack Smith, where she said, people call me Old Mother Smith, and that hurts my feelings. Quit doing that. I laughed. I thought, you know, what lady wants to be called old? Something's really are timeless. Give me an example of a woman from one of these speeches who you consider was speaking up in her discourse. Well, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about how women were reluctant to speak, especially in the 19th century, but I think we also see that in the 20th century as well, how women didn't feel comfortable speaking publicly. And again, that's why I think we see such a diversity of a form of discourse where they are speaking in a way that they're comfortable. But even Zina Young in 1869, when she's speaking to the Lehigh Relief Society, she says, I'm not accustomed to public speaking, but I'm pleased to look upon the faces of my sisters. And then she goes on and gives a talk. That's at the sort of at the beginning of her speaking career. And then she becomes so much more comfortable. She becomes the third General Relief Society president and is speaking all over the place. But it's that initial apprehension about speaking. Eliza R. Snow in 1867, 1868, when Brigham Young asked her to reorganize relief societies and to speak with bishops and with women, she said that my heart went pit-a-pat. She was so nervous. But then she became this prolific speaker. And then we see Emily Richards. Eliza R. Snow asks her, she's a young girl, a teenager perhaps. Eliza R. Snow asked her to speak up in a meeting, and she said she had nothing to say. And then Eliza says, well, never mind. But when you're asked to speak again, try and have something to say. So later, Emily Richards did. In fact, she spoke before the National Women's Suffrage Association in Washington, D.C., and her talk was noted in the newspapers. So I think part of it is this hesitancy to speak and this fear to speak. But once that experience is gained, I think women do speak up and speak out. I think one thing that we didn't really cover in our book, because as Kate said, we wanted to keep this um, to timeless doctrine, but the platform of polygamy in the 1870s and 80s became a really strong practical experience for women to speak up and speak out. They felt prompted and motivated because of anti-polygamy legislation and because of restrictions on the freedom of religion to speak up and to speak out and to defend polygamy. And as a result of that, they then would learn to speak up and speak out in terms of women's suffrage and of their role as women in the church. Jenny and I wrote introductions to each discourse in the book so that you can learn about the life of the speaker and the context in which the speaker lived. And one of the things that really comes through is how involved, especially mid-20th century Relief Society women were in broader local movements and national movements. And that took a lot of courage. For one, she was on a committee in New York City. Uh, They were talking about how to improve radio programming. They were concerned about game shows and other things that they felt were maybe not as good for the human mind as educational programming. And the Mormon women who were on that committee, Marianne Clark Sharp was one, were not persecuted, but there was a fair amount of prejudice on the committee. So they'd go around the table to get reports from everybody who was around the table. And they would get reports from everybody except the Mormon women, and then they would go on with the meeting and not wanting to hear from the Mormon women. Or Belle Spafford, when she, at her first National Council of Women meeting, said that she was Mormon, she wanted to say that she was there representing the Relief Society and explain what that was. And at the lunch, after she admitted that she was a Latter-day Saint, people kept telling her that all the seats were saved. They wouldn't have anybody sit by her, except for the president of the organization who said, you sit here by by me. So when Bell Spafford became Relief Society general president, she mentioned to the George Albert Smith, the president of the church, 
maybe we don't need to belong to the National Council of Women. I'm not sure it's of that much use to us. And he said, it might not be much use to us. Couldn't we be of use to it? So later, Bill Spafford, she said, yes, you're right. She went, she kept participating. She kept speaking at those meetings despite the occasional mean-spiritedness of the people around her. And um, she was president of that organization from 1968 to 1970 while she was also general president of the Relief Society organization. That's wonderful. Back to something Jenny mentioned, it was conspicuous to me, the lack of discussion of polygamy, which was such a large part of these women's lives for nearly a half century. Is it because they did not speak about it in discourses? Or was there another reason? Did you feel like it had been covered already extensively? What was the thought process behind that? We do have discourses about polygamy in the other Church Historians Press book published last year, The First 50 Years of Relief Society. So we did, in one sense, feel that we had covered that. In another sense, we were trying to find timeless doctrine, so speeches that people could relate to today. And we also felt that you don't get an accurate picture of what it's like to live polygamy from somebody who's publicly speaking about and defending the practice of plural marriage. And so for that, we also didn't think that that was quite the right fit. It's interesting, though, because I do think there are strains. You can't escape it from the 19th century. You can't escape the topic. And so there are mentions of it throughout different talks and references to it throughout different talks, but we very specifically chose talks that didn't dwell on the topic. But you will see words like the principle or the practice of marriage. But then you also see things like Eliza R. Snow speaking to the women at the Canab Relief Society in 1870, where she says, women, you are responsible for your own salvation. Your husbands are not responsible for your salvation. So she also is picking up on this idea of, well, if you're just married to a worthy priesthood holder, you're fine. But she's taking it a step further and giving women more responsibility and accountability. The doctrines and principles that many of these women speak to are similar to the ones we speak to now. Families, teaching our children, improving ourselves. Typically, if I were preparing a lesson or a talk, I would turn to the most recent, relevant, or powerful thoughts on the topic. So with this collection, what is your expectation for the reader? Is it just for their education? Or would you like them to use these discourses when they teach or they give talks? I think we should absolutely use these earlier discourses. They're very different from the later discourses. And most of it is the format of discourse is different in the 19th century. It's much more extemporaneous. But there are some incredible nuggets in these talks. Emma Smith in the Nauvoo Relief Society in 1842, talks about we are going to do something extraordinary. That's what we do today in our Relief Society meetings. We do extraordinary things. In fact, Sister Burton mentioned this in her April 2016 conference talk about refugees, and we are going to do something extraordinary. That is a timeless doctrine that we need to maintain. We have people like Matilda Dudley Busby, who spoke in the Salt Lake 13th Ward Indian Relief Society, encouraging a covenant that we speak no evil of each other, nor of the authorities of the church. That is something timeless. And even though her talk is very short, that is a principle that, that we need to hear today. One of the jewels of the book 
is a speech given in a fireside. And that atmosphere is likely quite different than the atmosphere at general conference. So you're going to hear different types of messages. For instance, in this fireside, it was given by Judy Brummer in Salt Lake City on April 2012. First of all, how do you find something like that? We had some church history missionaries who had done an interview with Judy and her husband, Andre. And after their interview, Judy said, you know, I'm giving a talk. You can come and hear it if you would like. And so they went and they recorded the talk and then transcribed it. So we're very grateful to them for recording this fireside. So here's this jewel. Here's this woman that gives an international view of the church that we all want to hear nowadays because we live in a worldwide church. One sentence that she said struck me. It was, I had a Methodist mom who taught me Mormon doctrine. I think just that one sentence, though simple, speaks so much to the broader Christian context that so many of these women came from who gave the discourses in your book. It's easy for some of us to think so much about the world in a way that's us and them. And I, the line that you refer to, just because it reminds us that all the women in this book, and Judy Brummer in particularly, they're trying to figure out the gospel of Jesus Christ and how to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And I feel like that's one of the things you really take away from the reading of this book, is how to be a more effective disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's a broader vision than than just a Mormon disciple of Christ. It's a disciple of Christ. I think maybe another example of that is Annie Noble. She lived in Nottingham, England, and was a Baptist and was very active in her church, and she experienced a mighty conversion. But she continued to respect her past and her husband, who remained Baptist. She would go to Baptist meetings in the morning, and then she would go to Latter-day Saint cottage meetings in the evening. And she talks about, in her talk, about how one day, one evening, she was walking along the lane to her cottage meeting and kind of questioning how did she know Joseph Smith was a prophet. And she received this very clear revelation and knew right then, that moment, without question, that Joseph Smith was a prophet, but she continued to navigate these two worlds and to figure out how to make them work for herself and her past and her family. But I think you also brought up a really interesting question, Laura, about how so many of these stories and discourses by women include personal experiences. And I think that does set them apart a little bit from men's discourses and testimonies, is that you have so many of these personal experiences. You see the application of this understanding, and they're very powerful. We've spoken about the timelessness of some of these messages, and this will be a discourse that I refer to in the future. It was given by Elsie Talmadge Branley. I told my husband the title of the discourse, and then I read a couple paragraphs, and then I gave him a quiz, and I said, guess which year this was written in? (laughs) And he goes, I have no clue. I'll guess. He wasn't even close. So I'm going to do the same thing, and listeners can guess on their own. The title of the discourse is The Religious Crisis of Today. Elsie said, We are living in critical times, and everything that can be shaken will be shaken. In the religious situation confronting us today, the world finds old conditions inadequate. In their reading, their studies, their observations, and their contexts, Youth make discoveries which to them seem new. 
when such discoveries appear to threaten time-honored religious traditions of their elders, concern inevitably is aroused. Oh my goodness, that's just what's happening now. It's like 2016. I know, it could have been given in the most recent conference, 1934. Can you believe that? And I loved the introductory material before that talked about what was going on in society at the time. I had no idea. Can each of you share one of your favorite messages in one of these discourses that you consider timeless or timely? We'll start with Kate. It's hard for me to pick favorites, but there is one from earlier in the book, the 1920s, that I have been thinking about a lot since our since the recent election. It's Jenny Knight Brimhall, who was one of the first single sister missionaries in the church. And she said, let us each and all bury our grievances, whether they pertain to our immediate family, our church, or our neighbor, and cover this pitfall that deprives us of happiness. So these grievances, she calls them a pitfall that deprives us of happiness. She says, let us bury that with a slab of forgetfulness and forgive as we hope to be forgiven. Jenny, do you have not a favorite, but one of your favorites? I think one of my favorites is Jane Nyman. And the reason why I love her talk is because of her background and her personal story. She came from Western Pennsylvania, and she and her husband and children moved to Nauvoo, and they were very poor and destitute. And her husband passed away. She remarried, and her second husband passed away. She applied to join the Nauvoo Relief Society, which at that time you had to gain membership. She was denied membership due to her daughters being involved in disreputable relationships. But I love that she never becomes bitter. She stays with the church. She leaves um, Nauvoo with another daughter and her family, ends up in Beaver, and becomes the first Relief Society president in Beaver, Utah. And after she's released, she talks about how important it is that charity, which covers a multitude of sins, which thinketh no evil and suffereth long and is kind— should dig the grave and help to bury all the malice and envy which at any time had intruded upon our peace and harmony. I love that she speaks from such personal experience, and yet she speaks something that we all need to hear. It's very similar to what Kate just shared. It's a very timeless topic, and it shows the power of charity and the power of individual women in really overcoming these difficulties. Another thing I noticed as I was flipping the pages slowly on this book and getting further along in history, that what you were doing was actually using a creative medium to teach history through these discourses, sermons, prayers, whatever. We are able to see changing attitudes in the church over time, attitudes toward the role of women at home and in a church. And also, I noticed times of retrenchment and battering down the hatches. What do you think that shows us as readers? I'm so glad you noticed that, Laura, because it's something we really enjoyed was writing these introductions and just showing how things shift. How You mentioned how in the 30s, people were really worried about all that was going on in the world. We know that that happened again in the 60s. People thought, oh, this is the end. It's never been this bad. We sometimes feel that way today. Oh, things are terrible. And just knowing that there are moments of despair and moments of hope and strength, knowing that there are moments when women sit on the stand during general conference and moments where women sit in the audience during general conference, it's really helpful to see that nothing is permanent. There hasn't been an uphill progression 
since the church's founding, and neither has there been a downhill regression. Did you see the pulling back sometimes? Tell me a little more about what you're seeing as a pulling back. There was a specific discourse that said, we're 12 years into retrenchment, meaning concentrating on less time on fancy meals, parties, dresses, and this is what we have learned. And then also in the 70s and 80s, we start getting these speeches about women and the priesthood and gendered roles that were not really in the speeches earlier in the century. And I saw that kind of as a pullback, as a batten down the hatches. Certainly the 70s, with especially conversations about the Equal Rights Amendment, was a time where a lot of people were mentioning women's role and their own ideas about what women's roles were. The talk we have in the book is by Belle Spafford, and she's saying things that I think can defy the way we usually like to put things in a box. And she says things that might not be surprising to us, like women's most important role is in her home. And then in the same speech, she's saying things that, but it, it's incumbent upon women today to speak beyond the confines of their homes and really be participating in public discourse and public activity to let their light shine in society today. I did notice that double message in a couple of talks. I just want to ask you one more question about the appendix because I was a little bit confused by it. I kind of wondered what the purpose of it was. I was hoping that we finally would have a listing of women's talks that we could reference in our own talks or in lessons because that's something a lot of us have been asking for. We'd love to be able to search it on LDS.org or even just here's a list of women's talks. But there are only three headings, date, speaker, and session. No heading for subject. So I know this person spoke on a certain day in a certain place, but before I go to the work of going to the church history library to find that talk, I want to know what it's about. Why the emphasis on time and place? So the purpose of our appendix was really to show how women have spoken in general conference, not necessarily to say what they talked about. That's a really good idea. And now that you mentioned it, I can see how that would add great value to our appendix. But our initial purpose was to just show sort of how women have been included and not included in general conference. This book slowly grew on me, I have to admit. At the beginning, I was like, okay, another book about 19th century women. I got a little bit more excited as we came into the 20th century and saw the wonderful stuff you've given us there. I need to tell you, thank you for compiling this for us. In conclusion, in five sentences or less, what would you like to share with our listeners about the history of women's discourse in the LDS Church? I think it's important to recognize that women have spoken up and spoken out, and that they've done so in different ways. And sometimes we have to be a little creative in understanding how they are speaking. They do speak, and that their words have contributed to the larger Latter-day Saint discourse. I think also it's important to recognize how valuable understanding their background and their history and their biography influences the words that they say and the stories that they tell. By reading some of these talks, I realized that I too have something important to say and that I too have a responsibility to contribute to Latter-day Saint discourse. In 1830, when Joseph Smith told Emma in Section 25 of the Doctrine and Covenants, 
he gave her the charge to expound scripture and exhort the church. And at the end of that section, he says, this is my voice unto all. On March 17, 1842, at the opening Relief Society meeting, Joseph Smith repeated this charge and charged the women in this meeting to expound scripture and exhort the church. And that is basically all of our responsibilities as women, to understand what truth and scripture say, to apply it to our own lives, and then to speak up and to share it. When we wrote at the pulpit, we were trying to speak to two audiences, an academic audience and a member audience. For the academic audience, This is not people speaking on behalf of Mormon women, which so often happens. It's Mormon women speaking for themselves, analyzing religion and their experience of faith in their own words. For the member audience, these are women sharing their deepest thoughts and reflections about how to be a better disciple of Christ. And we think you come away from this book with a much clearer sense of what discipleship can be. Thank you so much. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone, and LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, They in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.